0: Celebrating female role models across our community, live from Thomas Carr College in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Be Like Her Live on TCC Live. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Julia, and we are live from Thomas Carr College. You're listening to Be Like Her on TCC Live. I'm joined today with my co host, Massimo. As you are. And Alvin. Hello. With our very special guest, one of our favorite former teachers of TCC, Ms. Joseph Petarakis. How are you
1: today? I'm well, Julia. Thank you for that lovely introduction. It's nice to see you. How does it feel to be back at your former workplace? It feels amazing to be able to see colleagues that became friends and wonderful students. And that's, you know, the students are the biggest thing that I miss about Thomas Carr because you're all so fabulous. So it's been lovely to see some of you and unfortunately can't spend enough time talking with you, but it's been lovely. So how is the New School going over, over Newton? That's it's where. going really well. So um, it was a big step up for me, so I'm doing, uh, there's lots of learning and lots of mistakes to be made, um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying the role, so it's
0: good. So we have picked you today because you are one of our biggest role models here. I, I've talked to everyone. We love you, and our topic is basically talking about the patriarchy, and we know you are a woman in STEM and have excelled in that area, so we're just talking about different topics. is talking about family, been talking about the workplace, and I'm just talking about being a woman in general. I'm talking about that.
2: All right. So I'll kick it off. So um, obviously uh, when you were younger and obviously we know you're of a European uh, descent, mm-hmm. um, what was it like f- for you to grow up in a European household and what were the roles of women in your family?
1: So that's a great question. So very traditional roles, Mass. Um, my mum stayed at home, um, didn't work, so she was yeah. a full-time mum. Um, and I lived a very traditional Maltese lifestyle. So, um, when I look back on my childhood, it was very much faith centric. Um, and being Maltese, um, my faith or my family's faith played a very significant role, um, in the tempo of our life and the way that the kids were brought up. So, you know, we went to church every week, sometimes twice, prayed the rosary together as a family um, and my value structure was very much uh, formed around my faith. Um, So it was very traditional um, but very lovely as well. And I I guess I, growing up, didn't know – I didn't know a different lifestyle but it was great. It was safe and predictable and nurturing.
2: So like obviously your family would have had to adapt to – obviously – because women nowadays, it's a lot different to what how it used to be in roles and stuff like that. So has yeah. your family adapted?
1: Um, not really, not I really. guess. Um, I think probably the greatest adaptability is that I was not only the first person to go to a university out of both sides of my family, but I was also a woman. So I guess that would have been a very big change for my parents yeah. um, and for my family. Um, but in terms of, of their adaptability, this my parents are still living you know, the same life that they did when I was a child. Um, but I guess uh, in terms of how I see my role, I've had to navigate that on my own. Because I, I guess I didn't have a role model in my mum as to how to be um, a single mum, but also a full-time working mum. Yep. So, you know, that, that's presented some challenges. Um, but but I've been very lucky that I've had uh, wonderful support st- structures and great female role models to help me navigate in that space.
0: So you mentioned having two kids because you were our previous teacher so and you also mentioned earlier you got some values from your family so what values did you develop that you also want
1: to put into your kids as they grow up um i guess being of um a, a child of migrant parents uh the value of hard work so both of my parents worked very, very hard. Um, and just because my mum was a stay at home mum didn't mean that she had an easy life. So she provided us with a a great lifestyle. Um, uh, so I, I guess the value of hard work, um, but also just treating people the way that you want to be treated. So I think, um, the greatest thing that they taught me is that you get out of life what you put in. So my dad was very involved in the Maltese community and uh, you talked about how they adapted mass. They actually brought their culture here. So my, my father was one of the founding members of, um, uh, organizing a, a Maltese club. And so he, I guess adapted in the sense that they brought their culture with them. Um, and so he was very community involved in community. Um, so I guess it was that value of, if you want to have a meaningful life, you have to contribute to your community and you've got to be a participant in life. Um, And my mum also uh, is a very kind and generous woman and uh, probably my biggest role model. And uh, to me, she's the epitome of um, how joyful and uh, life-giving it is to be kind and decent to people.
0: Yeah. So if you're joining us just now, my name is Julia with my co-host Massimo and Alvin, along with our special guest, Joseph Padarakis, live from Thomas Carr College, and you're currently listening to Be Like Her on TCC Live. So you are a part of something called the diaspora, and that basically is when you live outside of the motherland, because you're currently living in Australia and from Malta. Did you feel as if there was any challenges growing up to fulfill any... I guess not really stereotypes, but any, what's the word? Um, Expectations that people in Malta would have in comparison
1: to those in Australia? Uh, Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) not. (laughs) (laughs) I think think back then in the 70s when I was a child, um, women's roles were still very traditional, really. You typically went to high school, graduated got a job, not necessarily went to university, met someone, got married, had children, and that was your life. Um, so fortunately uh, for me, I I really had no um, – I didn't have to fulfil any role other than um, just doing what, what interested me. Um, I guess, so. again, being part of a migrant family um, – there was probably a little bit of pressure to not actually fall into that role, yeah. yep. and to um, to be better than what my parents were, or to fulfil some sort of expectation that they would have had for their children. You know, they've they they came to Australia to get a better life, and I guess um, education was very much a, a part of that. So I guess there was a thinking about it. There was a little bit of pressure to um, to do great at school and hopefully go to university. So I guess I was breaking that traditional mould, but I had those family expectations about hmm. further education.
2: So when you were at Thomas Car, you did teach a lot of science, and I just have to ask you, um, how did you discover that passion for your particular field? Um, was that something you always just wanted to do, or was that like a high school? You yeah. discovered in tertiary.
1: Yep. Uh, interesting is I was speaking to a friend about where my interest for science came from. And uh, I think it was just something I was born with. So I was always a very curious child. Mm. Um, And I grew up in Altona Meadows in the seventies and there were not many people around. So I didn't have lots of friends to play with because they just weren't there. Um, So I had to entertain myself. And like I said, I was a very curious child and this is going to sound completely nerdy and you're not going to relate to it at all, but there used to be a show called The Curiosity Show and it was a science show. And uh, I used to watch – Ralph's laughing there. <laughs> and I used to watch The Curiosity Show and then go and try and replicate the experiments. Um, so I, I loved that journey of um, discovery and, and doing something and seeing what the results were. And I remember being very young, eight, eight years old, and I remember trying to just to – just, to distill the perfume oh, yeah. out of roses. Yep. Um, but I would watch insects play and I would play in the mud and I would watch birds. And, you know, I was um, always just interested in the natural world and um, always tried to find an explanation for things. Yep. And then I, I just loved biology. Yep. Uh, when I um, started high school, I just had a natural interest in biology and I just found that I was able to remember things and the more I learned the more I wanted to learn um, and then I did did science um, post high school and just found a love of microbiology that I wasn't aware of when I was in high school um, yeah so it and microbiology is just one of those very practical sciences that yep. that impact impact life every day so yeah.
2: So, so yeah. On that topic, um, what was your first ever like major role in the field of science?
1: Oh, good question. Um, I think probably I was still doing my honours degree, and I was working on a DNA vaccine against uh, or for chlamydia trachomatis, and yes, it's that STD chlamydia. <laughs> But but chlamydia is important because it's actually one of the leading causes of blindness in third world countries. So when women give birth to their children and the child passes through the birth canal, they become infected with chlamydia and they become blind. Um, and also at the time, uh, koala numbers were going down because they're quite promiscuous and were spreading chlamydia. <laughs> um, and so uh, – very traditional methods of making vaccines don't work for chlamydia. Yeah. Um, so I was doing my honours degree and I was the first person to be able to um, produce the chlamydia protein um, externally in tissue culture, which meant that it created a, a, a basis for the vaccine to start to develop. Um, so that being, you know, still pretty young, that was a real thrill for me. Um, and uh Probably that was my first contribution to science. Yep. And then after that, I worked at CSL in the R&D department and was working on veterinary viral vaccines, so the the vaccines that you use for your cats and dogs. Um, I was involved in making those uh, vaccines um, more um, increase their eff- efficacy, so make them better and cheaper because I was working for a company yep. um, back then. So, yeah, they, they were my contributions to science and hopefully I've taught wonderful scientists and we know, you know, I had the privilege of of teaching Dr. Kassar and uh, I think that for me that our role and contribution to science continues See, in it's education quite,
2: it's quite interesting because um back when I, when I was in year 10 you actually taught me uh, and i didn't actually want to do anything to do with science uh but i really just fell in love with like stem after being taught by you and luckily it's kind of all kind of working out so it's actually um i'm quite lucky in that sense uh, i was originally going in a very different trajectory then i don't know magic did its thing and I, I just fell in love with science so now uh, I am also thinking about going into like things like that. So it's yeah. quite interesting.
1: Oh yeah. well, that's lovely. Thank you, Alvin. Good, Good luck.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Bouncing off back, Alvin, like you've been my teacher since year ten and then year eleven went to biology. Like I hate biology. I'll put it out there. <laughs> I hate it. I can't do it. <laughs> but then having you as a teacher, it really helped me to understand things. I just love going to class, even though <laughs> biology was so stressful. And it still still is, even though I'm not in it. Hear my friends talking about it, I just gag every single time.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but even though biology was probably not the role for me, having you as a teacher really helped. And it's just really great having you there. Going off of that.
2: Thank you. Oh well, along your STEM journey and career, did you feel at any point that you were you wanted to pursue something else? Um, just due to maybe the challenges or anything that came along the way?
1: Um well Obviously I made that big change of leaving R and D yep. for and working for a company and working in education. Absolutely, yeah. Um so I guess that's been the biggest change in my science career. Yep. But I'm very lucky that um I absolutely still love being in education. Um, even though my role now is a little bit different and I'm not in the classroom as much. Um, I still am teaching science. Um so I haven't I haven't really diverted. I've just found something that I love doing, yeah. at which I am I know that I'm very, very lucky um, because it still energizes me. And importantly, I just feel fulfilled. I feel like um, it gives me a reason to wake up every day. Yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of, I think, I think now, like nowadays, there's a lot more females going into STEM. Um, yes. And I think that's really great because Uh, In the past, we've seen it's very male-dominated and now it's just.
1: It's interesting that you say that, Alvin, because when I was doing my science degree, I actually thought that there would be more males and females. Yeah. And it wasn't. That wasn't the case. Tell us more. Um, (laughs) Well, now, having said that, I was doing biological sciences. So there were, f- there were far more females than males doing biological sciences. Uh, yeah. However, when we get to maths and science, yep. that's where our deficit um, in female representation exists. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately that still exists mm. and that's where STEM really needs to focus. We need to really encourage um, women to pursue maths and physics and to some extent chemistry as well. So... Um, there is still a lot of work to be done in that space.
2: I was pretty fortunate enough to participate in the National Youth Science Forum. And it Mm. was really great because um, we learned from a lot of um, guest speakers that were quite inspiring Mm. and we learned from a lot of people that have a lot of experience in that background. And I also found that there were a lot more females attending those things because, and it really just goes to show like there is really nothing that can stop you essentially. And it's... Open field.
1: It is absolutely yep. an open field. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think there's um, a gender bias in terms of pursuing science, but I think it does exist, like I said, in yep. pursuing um, maths and, and physics. So,
0: mm. just going off what you said earlier about transitioning into an education role, was there any challenges during that transition from even though STEM is a male dominant uh, industry? Was there any challenges when you went into education even though right now education is mainly matriarchal and it's uh, female dominated but still under the science industry would say it's like still male dominant so were like
1: any challenges that erupted? Um, in terms of transitioning to education no because you're right <laughs> teaching is very female dominant um, but lots of people thought my dad included, uh, thought I was taking a step backwards, his words. And he said, you know, why would you give up a science job to take up teaching? And um, So there was that challenge to overcome. But interestingly, when I was working um, as a scientist in R&D, I was actually part of an all-female team. Oh. So my boss was a female yeah. and, you know, I sort of went into that entry level, the lady above me or the person above me was a female, and then there was me, and then we recruited two other females. So our department was exclusively female. So that's what I was saying about I've been very lucky in that I've always been surrounded by strong female role models. Um, I've just been very lucky. So someone cast the dice the right way for me. Um, But going back to your question about difficulties um, transitioning, interestingly, I've just thought of a story. I did work at a school, um, it was an all-boys school, and uh, interestingly, um, I found it very difficult to transition into that school hmm. because the boys thought that I was a liability, oh. because I was European, yep. I was educated in the western suburbs, uh. and I still lived in the western suburbs, yep. um, and I was a woman
2: yeah.
1: teaching science. Yep. So very, very interesting. So that was that was 22 years ago. I know that seems like a long time for you, but it, in my life is not really a long time. So that's interesting. I'd never thought of that until then, but that was probably the most uh, difficult transition I had and a, and, ex- and a time when I did experience, I don't know,
2: bias. Yeah, yeah. Especially that western eastern side. Oh, it's yeah.
1: it it's still, still exists. Yeah, it still yeah. exists now. Yeah, it's absolutely stupid. And yeah. and I at university, when I told them where I lived and where I came from, they were like,
2: "Really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, you're from the western suburbs?" <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's interesting that it still exists. So, you all have a role in changing that yeah. perception. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Our final question for today is what advice would you give not only young females, but just some females in general, especially mothers, single mothers out there, even elderly?
1: I don't know. If someone's got the answers, I'd like to know them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have all the answers. I guess you just have to do the best uh, that you can do and you have to be absolutely true to yourself um, and follow your passions and follow your dreams, even though there are external influences um, that, you know, put pressure on you to choose a different course. And actually uh, there is something um, as a woman, maybe not even as a woman, maybe even as a man, I don't know. I've got no experience there. Um, (laughs) it's very difficult to ask for help.
2: Yeah. We see that a lot yeah. these days, especially just with the way the culture is around yep. um, seeking for help. I've yeah. that in particular with even my guy friends are a bit um, unsure and a bit uneasy to ask for help. Absolutely. It's just, it just yeah. doesn't exist really. So
1: no. So uh, it. I think society perceives that when you ask for help, it's actually a weakness. weakness. Yep. Yep. But I actually believe that the opposite is true yeah. because if you're asking for help, there's an example that you're self-aware that you don't have all the answers and a sense of humility
2: yep.
1: um, that you're able to ask for someone for help. Um, and I know I said I wasn't going to swear, so I'm going to try and find the right word. But you all know you can pick a phony, right? You know those people that think that they know all the answers and they bluff their way yep. and you just go, oh, my God, what are they doing? Yeah. But asking for help um, not only empowers you, but actually it also empowers the person that you're asking for help because um, there's a recognition there that um, they might have an answer that you don't necessarily know. So it is empowering for that person, but also it is empowering for you. Um, And being a single mum, yes, I try and do it on my own, but I know when I need to ask for help. Um, and even in my new role, I ask for help all the time because I, I'm not very good at bluffing. Um, and like I said, it's empowering for for the staff.
2: Yeah.
0: And as much as we love to keep talking, I know <laughs> how good is it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to wrap it up for today. Thank you, Joseph, for coming in. We are Julia Masam and Alvin, line from Thomas Carr College, and you have been listening to Be Like Her on TCC Live. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you have found us enlightening. Until next time, take care. Celebrating female role models across our community, live from Thomas Carr College in Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on TCC Live.